Right. Let's begin. Good morning. So excited to see so many of you in Sunday school right here as we start new year, new series. That's really encouraging to me. Let's pray as we begin. Great creator God, Lord, we want to meditate on the majesty of you and your creation. Lord, help us this morning as we begin this new series and as we begin a special investigation of the first two chapters of your divine word. Lord, to understand, to have a humble heart to listen, to have the wisdom to consider, and to have the boldness to hold fast to your truth. Help me to be able to explain this well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, this is lesson one of our new series, a new seven-part series that we're calling The Creation Foundation. You might be wondering why we've chosen to do a short series studying creation and studying Genesis 1 and 2 specifically. And let me give you a twofold answer. First, there is unfortunately a lot of confusion and even compromise in the Christian church when it comes to the issue of creation. And so we want to respond to that. I want to, your elders want to help you equip you for dealing with that situation. And along those same lines, a second reason is that understanding creation rightly from the Bible is crucial for our spiritual health and witness to the world. Now, why is that? Well, is it because that you need to believe a certain view of creation in order to be saved? Well, no, thank the Lord. This is not a salvation issue, though there are important implications for how you understand the gospel based on how you understand creation, how you understand Genesis 1 to 2. Furthermore, there are many important biblical doctrines that are affected by what you believe about these first two chapters. Say more about that later. But more fundamentally, the issue of creation is important because it is a clear test of what you and I believe is ultimately authoritative for understanding our world. Is the plain sense of Scripture authoritative? Or is it man's ideas and even scientific claims? Do you start with the Scriptures and then assess man's theories and ideas with the Scriptures? Or do you start with man's ideas, theories, and opinions and use those to assess the Scriptures? Understand that to be a Christian, a true Christian means to embrace a fundamentally biblical worldview. Now, a little bit of interaction here. What does it mean to have a biblical worldview? Okay, you do believe that the Bible is God's inspired word, but it's more than that. That's right, and that's a good way to describe it, Leela. To have a biblical worldview means that you see the world through what the Bible says. The Bible is our ultimate foundation and authority for truth. We believe the Bible, we Christians who have a biblical worldview, or ought to, we believe the Bible over what anybody says or feels, including ourselves, because we're not reliable. The things that in the world are not fully reliable, but the Word of God is. God is perfect. He has given us a perfect and reliable word. So it is our starting point for understanding the world. As we have experiences, we 
read or view information or we encounter truth claims from various people, we don't just take those at face value. We don't just take the interpretations offered to us. We interpret and respond to whatever we see and encounter through the lens of the Bible, according to what it says. To borrow a phrase from Ken Ham, the president of Answers in Genesis, we Christians look at life and the world through biblical glasses. You say, oh, isn't that going to make us biased? No, because according to the scriptures, that's the only way we can see reality clearly. The scriptures are reliable. People often look at life through different kinds of glasses, through the glasses of man's feelings, through the glasses of autonomous human reasoning, that is, reasoning without God. People will interpret information assuming that God is not real or that the Bible is not true or it's unreliable. And so when they look at data, they interpret it in a way that's going to distort the facts. It's going to misinterpret the information. They therefore come out with a distorted view of the world, distorted conclusions about the world, about people, about life. They come to many wrong conclusions, especially about the important things, which is why the Bible says in the New Testament, when it comes to the wisdom of the world, it has become foolishness. Their thinking has become darkened and futile. As Christians, we are not to proceed that way. As Paul says in Ephesians, you did not learn Christ this way. We are to proceed in such a way that we start with and we stick with the scriptures. We need a biblical worldview. But if the scriptures are the ultimate foundation for truth, even as the psalm says, a lamp to our feet, a guide to our path, or a light to our path, well, how are we to understand the scriptures? Well, the answer to that is we must let the Bible speak for itself. We cannot assume meaning or force meaning into the text of Scripture according to some source outside the Bible, even our own ideas. We have to let God speak from his Scriptures. We want to discover, we want to bring out that meaning. Well, how do you do that? Well, to be very practical, it means that you study the Bible inductively. Study the Bible inductively. What does that mean? Well, that's kind of a big term for a simple idea. Before you form a conclusion about what a specific section of the Bible means, or consequently how it should affect your life, you need to actually pay close attention to what it says. You need to first observe a text's many and different details, then interpret according to those details, and then apply the conclusions you reach to your life. You need to observe first, then interpret, then apply. If you start with an interpretation, you start with a conclusion, and then you search the text for evidence, well, you put yourself in danger. What's the danger? Yeah, you will very likely be biased. You will oftentimes twist the text to make it fit the conclusion or hypothesis that you had you will inadvertently end up twisting the text. But if you are willing to observe first and base your conclusions on what you actually observe in the Bible, 
well, then you have a much better chance of getting your interpretation and consequently your application correct. Remember, we're not just here to learn what the Bible means, but actually apply it to our lives, be transformed by it. So it's with these concepts in mind that I'd like to embark with you on a study of Genesis 1 to 2. This is truly a foundational section of the Bible, and it calls for careful understanding. Now, we're going to be conducting this study using some material from Answers in Genesis. That's why you see Answers Bible Curriculum there on the slide. Who's Answers in Genesis? Many of you remember. Answers in Genesis is a Christian apologetics organization that specializes in defending the Bible's account of creation. This is true. This is reliable. We can proceed with this. We're going to use some of their material, but ultimately, we want to be captive to what the Word of God says. That's what we're going to investigate. Today is lesson one. God creates the universe. Here's our outline for today's lesson. We're going to first overview the creation account by watching a video that goes through each verse of chapter 1, basically reading it for us, and then we'll discuss. After that, we're going to do an activity that compares the world's beginning sequence according to the Bible with the world's beginning sequence according to prevailing secular theory. And then finally, we'll finish by talking through some important application questions. So let's start with an overview and discussion of the creation account. So please open your Bibles to Genesis 1. That should be right at the beginning of your Bibles. Page 1 in the Pew Bible. And let's now dim the lights if we can and get a short video running. This video is about five minutes, and it's basically going to read with a little bit of visual accompaniment, take us through the whole chapter. Genesis 1, 1 to 31. When you're ready. was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said let there be light and there was light and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so and god called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas and god saw that it was good and god said let the earth bring forth grass the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. 
and the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life and birds that may fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of heaven. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature after its kind, livestock and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after its kind. And it was so. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thanks for dimming the lights. We can turn those back on. Not sure if it made too much of a difference, but thank you for doing that anyways. So that gives us an overview of the creation account. There are a few verses that I think it, it bypassed, but that is the main parts of Genesis 1. We're going to examine that in more detail over the next few weeks. But even just from that video presentation with the text in front of us, let's see if we can't make some observations, some preliminary observations, interpretations, and conclusions about this monumental chapter. One important question that we need to answer about Genesis 1 is what type of literature is it? What is its genre? Is it a narrative, a story of events told in an orderly sequence? Is it a poem? a more figurative and emotional kind of writing that doesn't necessarily have sequence? Or is it some other type of writing? Well, rather than assuming one of those answers, let's see if we can't determine the answer based on what appears in the text. 
If Genesis 1 is narrative, we should see a clear and orderly sequence of events in the text. Do we see that? Some of you are saying yes. What evidence do you have of that? What's something you can point to? You say there's a chronology, what do you mean? Right, we do have specific time information given for us in the text. In the beginning it says, evening and morning. There's day one, day two. Actually, if you look just beyond our chapter a little bit, at the beginning of chapter two, you see a summary statement that also has time information. Look at Genesis 2, verse, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 2, 1 and 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So we definitely have these clear time markers. Is there anything else we can point to to show sequence? Okay. Yeah, there is a certain amount of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of another word besides order, but you look at what happens on each day, and it does seem to like tie off itself kind of nicely. And it says, you know, at the end of the day, there's evening and morning. It is pretty organized. I think we can also, perhaps this is obvious, but we can point to the fact that we have these action verbs that talk about one thing happening and then another thing happening. It says God created, then God said, God saw, God separated, then God said. Those words indicate events happening in sequence. In fact, it's even more explicit in the Hebrew. What you see in this passage, the types of verbs that are quite frequent here, are called yiktol verbs. You don't really have to worry about that term itself, except to know that that type of verb is usually used to indicate sequence. If you want to over-translate it, then you would translate it, and then this happened, and then this happened. It indicates sequence. It's very explicit about sequence. This verb type appears frequently in narratives in the Old Testament, but very infrequently in poetry. Now, these details are significant. But what about literary devices? What about literary devices and stylistic elements? If Genesis 1 is poetry, we should see pervasive literary techniques intended to make the text more stylized, more emotional, more beautiful. Do we see any of those kinds of techniques in the passage? That's an interesting observation. If we just compare it to other sections that are obviously poetry, this does seem to read differently. But are there any literary elements like, oh, you know, put a little bit of style there? There is repetition. In fact, it is quite evident in the passage. Lots of things repeated. Actually, let me ask you, what are some words and phrases that are repeated in this passage? And it was good, and God saw that it was good. What else? And there, was and, and there was evening and morning, and then blank day. Okay, then God said, God called, God made, let there be, and it was so. 
we noted the repeated structure that kind of ties off each day nicely. That is a stylistic choice. When it says, then God said, there's a description of what God created, and then it finished with, there was evening and morning, day X. That is nice, and there's something pleasing about that. Is that the only literary element that sticks out here? Yeah, Dwayne. Right, so there's there's another interesting observation. If we're talking about what genre is this passage, it is significant that the vast majority of the book of Genesis is narrative. I I say vast majority because there are, like, I think there's a section of prophecy later on that is told in a poetic fashion. But this is a book of narrative. So what would Genesis 1 be? But still, before we come to a a conclusion there, we want to know literary elements, stylistic elements that are more akin to poetry. Certainly there's heavy repetition, there's even this purposeful organizational structure. What about symmetry? Oh, I do have it listed up there. Do you notice there's a certain amount of correspondence between days one to three and days four to six? On day one, we see light created. On day four, we see the celestial bodies created that rule day and night and that emit light. On day two, we have the waters divided and the sky created. And on day five, we have the sea and air creatures created. On day three, the land appears and the vegetation is created. And on day six, we have the animals that are on the land created and man. There does seem to be a noticeable symmetry, even a pleasing symmetry to the way the creation account unfolds. Does that mean that this passage should be taken as poetry and that the events are not necessarily presented in chronological order? Don't answer that yet. Let's make a few more observations of the text, and then we'll move on to interpretation. Okay. What period of time does this passage describe? The beginning. That's what it says in verse 1. How much time goes by in this chapter? It says six days. Who is doing the creating in this chapter? God is. And it could be a little bit more. We could say it's the triune God. We see the spirit is hovering over the waters. And it also says, then God said. But it's God. How did the various parts of creation come into existence by God? He spoke and they appeared. Then God said. Then God said. Sometimes it says God made, but the majority of the time it says then God said. And it was so. And this truth, by the way, is repeated in Psalm 33, 6. Psalm 33, 6, commenting on creation, says, By the word of the Lord, or by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He just spoke, he just breathed, and it came to be. This then can be called fiat creation. Creation by decree. Creation by command. All God had to do was order something to come into being, and it was so. And isn't that amazing? <laughs> you... He just ordered it. It had never existed before, and it just appeared. Amazing. Now, we could definitely make more observations, but we're just doing preliminary ones for now. Let's see if we can use these, though, to answer some questions of interpretation. So let's come back to that first question. What genre is Genesis 1? 
this is narrative. This is historical narrative. From just looking at the text itself, it should be obvious. We have a set of events here, significant events presented in sequential fashion with specific time details. That's what a narrative is. And because these events are historical ones, we can include this confidently in the genre of historical narrative or simply history. And as Dwayne pointed out, this only makes sense because that's what the rest of Genesis 1 is. I mean, not Genesis 1, the rest of the book of Genesis is. It purports to be the history of the beginning of the world and the history of Israel. So it makes sense that this passage would be history as well. Yet what about those stylistic elements? Does the presence of literary devices like repetition or even symmetry contradict the idea that the passage is historical narrative? Can you have literary devices like that in a historical narrative? Yes, you can. In fact, all the history writers in the Bible use things like these. You go to the books of the rest of the books of Moses or the Old Testament histories or the New Testament Gospels, you're going to see the same kind of things that we see here. Repetition, purposeful organization, some things that make the text a little bit more beautiful. That does not automatically make it poetry. Even in the histories that people write today, they don't write just clunky history that's hard to read. They try and make it a little bit attractive. But that doesn't mean that what they've written is not true or just an emotional description. Using a literary device does not make an account any less historical, factual, or true. Hang on a second. I see some hands there. But what about the symmetry? Well, the presence of symmetry in the passage is not as significant as is sometimes argued. For example, advocates of what's called the framework hypothesis argue that Genesis 1 is poetry and does not actually indicate the exact order or events of creation. And they assert that the tight symmetry of creation days 1 to 3 and three to, or 4 to 6 shows that Moses was presenting a nice topical view of creation rather than a chronological view of creation. They say Moses was just using six days. It's kind of like an organizational framework. It was just convenient to talk about it that way, to summarize generally what God accomplished in creation over what was really an indeterminate amount of time. They say that in days one to three, we are presented with the main realms of creation, light, sea, and air, land. And then in days four to six, we get the rulers of those realms. We got the sun, moon, and stars. We get the sea and air creatures. We get the land animals and man. So this tight, this very purposeful organization, come on, that is too tight. That is too neat and nice for it to be a chronological account. This must be figurative. Well, there are two main problems with that argument. What's one of them? Did you say something, Judy? Okay, it is an opinion. But is it faithful to the scriptures? That's what we want to find out. Uh, Danny. Okay. Okay, so there's first of all, this isn't one of the things I was thinking of, but it's worth noting. There's first of all, all the other details in the text that argue historical narrative. Okay, we got to deal with those somehow. You may have this symmetry in part, but what about all those other details? But there are still two other fundamental problems. Uh, go ahead, Magda. I was just going to ask about the large 
Okay. Okay, so how does that make it so that, how does that prove, or how does that disprove their assertion? Because they actually might say, exactly, you can't talk about the micro until you talk about the macro. This is just all in an organizational framework. This is just a convenient way of talking about it. See, this isn't necessarily historical. Though I think you're on to something. Two big problems. First is, the symmetry does not work the way that they assert it does. The symmetry is not as tight as they say it is. Because let's look at it again. What is created on day one? Light is created on day one, but is that the only thing created on day one? Moreover, it's not the created realm of day one. Light is not a realm, it's something that exists in a realm, in multiple realms. They talk about water being the created realm of day two. But water was already existing on day two. It was not created on day two. It was just divided on day two and divided on day three as well. Actually, land, it wasn't created on day three. It already existed on day three. So these realms did not come into being all nice and neat on these one, two, three days. Moreover, there's a problem with this assertion about the rulers of these realms. They say that on you know, days four, five, and six, we get the different rulers of these realms, but the animals of day five and six, they are never made rulers of these realms. That's not what the text calls them. In fact, there's only one creature in this text who's designated as a ruler. And which animal, I'm sorry, which creature is that? Man. Man is given dominion over the earth and its waters and the creatures of the waters, sea, and sky. I mean, waters, earth, and sky. So this nice little tight framework doesn't work quite the way they say it does. So there's a problem, but here's an even bigger one. It does not follow that symmetry means figurative, non-chronological account. Why not? It's nice and orderly. They say that must be. It means it's not factual. Why is that not a fair conclusion to make? Yeah, Dwayne. Exactly. There's nothing to say that if it is indeed symmetrical, that God couldn't have done it that way. In fact, just as Dwayne was saying, that would make sense for God to do it that way. He is an orderly God. It would make sense for him to go through creation in a nice, orderly way. In fact, that appears to be not just a, a chance thing, but look again at the situation described in verse 2 when it comes to the earth. It says, the earth was formless and empty. Or we could translate that, the earth was unformed and unfilled. Well, what then proceeds in the narrative? In days one to three, God gives form to the earth and heavens. Divides the waters, divides the sky, causes the vegetation to appear. And on days four to six, we then see God filling the heavens and the earth with the celestial bodies, with the animals, with man. 
So that's no figurative framework. That's just a logical progression based on God's assessment of the earth in verse 2. So based on the symmetry or based on the repetition of the text, that is no reason to take this text as non-historical. Rather, we have significant details that argue that this is a narrative of historical nature. So this is one fundamental conclusion that we need to come to right at the beginning. Genesis 1, even with the stylistic choices that Moses makes, it is clearly historical narrative. That's going to have many important implications for how we interpret this passage. And we'll look at those in later classes. But let's look at some, let's consider some other questions of interpretation. The first part of Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning. In the beginning of what? In the very beginning, beginning. In the beginning of time, in the beginning of the universe. And if this passage describes the beginning of the universe, then what existed before Genesis 1-1? Only the eternal God. Only the triune God. There was nothing else in the universe. Because if there were, it's not really the beginning. But someone might ask, wait a second, what about the angels? They're not mentioned in the text. Maybe they existed before the beginning? Well, the Bible doesn't give very much information when it comes to angels. Though we do know from the Bible that the angels were created. Colossians 1.16 says, Colossians 1.16, speaking of Jesus, says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, that's a significant statement about Jesus as God and creator. But note, when it talks about things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, that's not just talking about human rulers. Actually, those descriptors are used in other places in the New Testament to talk about angelic beings. I'm thinking of Ephesians 6 in particular. They're part of the group of things invisible, and Colossians says Jesus created them. Jesus created those angelic beings, those spiritual rulers. Also, we know from the book of Job that angels were present during some portion of creation. Because Job 38, Job 38, 4-7 records, and this is in the midst of God's reproof of Job, Job 38, 4-7, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Morning stars, sons of God, those can't be phrases that apply to human beings. They must be understood as referring to angels from the book of Job. So angels were rejoicing when God laid the foundation of the earth. It should either be on day one or day three. So we know that angels were definitely created. But when were the angels created? We can't say for sure. John MacArthur, in one of his sermons on creation, he reasons that angels were probably created shortly before they could do their function. I mean, that would just make sense. And their function is to proclaim the revealed glory of God and to minister in his creation. So MacArthur suggests that the angels were created on day one or day three. Answers in Genesis takes a similar view. We don't know for sure, but angels were created during the creation week. Not recorded us for specifically in Genesis, but it must be that way. Because it says in the beginning. Now, go back to Genesis 1.1. The second part of the verse says, God created the heavens and the earth. What exactly does that phrase mean? 
I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but is this a summary of God's creation activities on days one to six, which are then explained in more detail in the rest of the chapter? Or is it actually a description of what God did first on the first day? Did he create the heavens and the earth and then create light? Or is this just a kind of catch-all description and light is the first thing created? There's some difficulty in this question. But I'm going to present to you that I believe Genesis 1-1 is a description of God's first creative acts rather than a simple summary of the rest of the chapter. And let me tell you why. Because notice again in Genesis 1-2, the description of the earth's state before God creates light. God notes that it was formless and void. But what else do you notice about the earth from that verse? It was dark. Okay, it's formless. It had a surface. What else? Say that, Danny. It had water, and it was there. The earth was there. It had water on it. It was dark, but it was formless and void. Now, that's significant, because nowhere else in the days of creation does it say that God created land or water. It's already there. Even on day three, as I noted earlier, day three is not the creation of land, but the what of land. Say that again. That's right. It just appeared on day three. The waters moved out of the way. The land appeared. It wasn't created. So when were they created? Furthermore, days two and three do not describe the creation of water on the earth, just the separation of water. We talked about that. So it would be strange for Moses to assert that the very first creation act would be the creation of light when that light shines on an empty, unformed earth. Because that raises the question, where did the earth come from? Where did the waters come from? Were the earth and waters previously created before day one? Were they eternally existent? Wouldn't it be much more natural to, considering it is day one, the first day in the beginning, wouldn't it be much more natural to mention the earth's actual creation with its water before describing its state in the creation of light? Now there is one difficulty of taking this view. On day two, it says that God separated the waters by an expanse, and he called the expanse heaven. Wait, if you're saying that Genesis 1-1 is a description of God's first creative acts, it says he created the heavens and the earth. Day two says that God created heaven on that day. Doesn't that contradict? Didn't God already create the heavens in Genesis 1-1 on day one, rather than day two? Well, my reply to that objection is yes. God did create the universe and the heavens on day one, yet they were unformed. They were incomplete. Really, this idea of filling in what was incomplete, it, it's what drives the flow of the narrative. God creates the earth. The earth was unformed and empty, but then he continues forming it and filling it. It's the same thing with the heavens. In Genesis 1.1, the heavens are created, that is the unfilled cosmos, but they're not fully formed, and they're still empty. So the expanse on day two is part of completing the forming of the heavens. And the celestial bodies of day four, that would be part of filling the heavens. 
So what's happening with the earth over days 1 to 6 is also happening with the heavens on days 1 to 6. So I don't believe Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, or um, Genesis account for what happens on day 2, really contradict one another. So to summarize what I'm presenting to you, I assert that Genesis 1-1 is not a summary of the preceding account of creation, but a description of God's first creative acts. But if you don't buy that, and you say, David, it really sounds like a summary. Or if you think that, as many good men do, that it's both, both a description and a summary, I'm not sure how that works, but okay. If you take either one of those views, well, then I would at least insist that you accept what is stated explicitly in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Exodus 20, 11 says, For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Did you hear what Exodus 20, 11 says? In six days God made the heavens and the earth. They were created as part of that span of six days. So even if, if Genesis 1-1 is a summary, implied in that summary is that God created the earth and the water on day one of the creation week and not before. It's part of that span. It couldn't have happened on any other day other than day one. Why is that significant? Well, that means that there is no room to believe in eternally existent matter or what is called the gap theory. The idea that billions of years went by between Genesis 1, Genesis 1-1, and Genesis 1-2. God created the heavens and the earth, a whole bunch of time went by, then God did the rest. No, Exodus 20-11 doesn't leave room for that. You cannot fit an old earth between the first two verses of the Bible. All right, another question. Exodus 20-11. Exodus 20-11, yeah part of the Ten Commandments, and uh, actually has to do with another question we're going to ask in a second. Now, if you're an Israelite, listening to the Law of Moses being read before going into the Promised Land, or being read soon after you've come into the Promised Land, why should this passage be significant to you? What is the main point that you're supposed to get from this account in Genesis 1? Or in Genesis 1? What do you think? I heard Mike say, God is God. Um, uh, Glenda, are you going to say something more? Right, it, it's revelation of who God is. Judy? I couldn't hear the last part of what you said. Yeah, very good. So they do need to go, even as Mike and Glenda were saying, they need to know who the true God is, especially because they're about to go into another land where there's going to be temptation to worship all these other gods who seem to have created or have some important role in creation. And Moses is clarifying, God is clarifying through Moses from the very beginning, they're not gods, they're not creative, they're not the ones who sustain this universe. I am. So don't look to them, look to me. Can we say anything more? Yeah, Emma. Okay, so it's going to be an explanation of where man came from. Man was created by God. Why is that significant for the Israelites? Okay, so the Israelites, man didn't always exist. So why is that significant? Okay, they had to come from somewhere. 
They came from God. So what obligation do they have towards God? Right. That's right. So this isn't just a matter of, okay, which God are we going to go with? Are we going to go with that God or this God? There are no other gods. There's no other creator. In fact, if he created you, then you are responsible to him. He's the one that you should seek. And more than that, look at how we created. This wasn't hard for this God. This wasn't some ordeal where he's like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off. He just commanded it, and it was. And it was good. Now, why is that significant for the Israelites? Yeah, Mark. Mm. Notice that he spoke and it kicked off a process. Mm. He spoke and it was done. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so you said a number of good things there. This is really emphasizing the power of God's word, and that has certain implications about some attempts at integrating um, modern theory with uh, the creation account. But again, just thinking specifically about what the Israelites were facing, they're not just going in there and encountering other gods. They've got something to do when they go into the promised land. What do they got to do? They got to conquer it. They got to fight enemies. They got to do battles against a people, uh, several peoples that probably all together are more numerous than the Israelites. And they've got fortresses. They've got chariots. How are you going to beat these guys? Well, you're going to trust God. You're going to trust God who is powerful, who's the creator, whose word makes anything sure and come to pass. You don't have to fear those enemies if you have the creator God on your side. So, this is so significant for the people of Israel in terms of their being directed to trust God, to believe in God, to worship God, to rely on God as they obey God. And of course, that isn't just something that they needed to hear. That's something for us too, isn't it? And I'll talk more about application in just a little bit. This is not just informational. This is meant to be transformational. Yeah, sure. Did we establish that in the beginning was our beginning? In the beginning was our beginning. Your question is, did we establish that in the beginning was our beginning? In a way, yes. Right. So this isn't the beginning of God, no. Right. And I think the rest of the scriptures make that clear, especially when God is explaining his name in, in um, Exodus 3, I believe it is, Exodus 3 and 4 to Moses, tell them Yahweh sent you. I am. I'm the self-sufficient one. I wasn't created. I'm the one who, um, no, I don't need anything from anybody. So this isn't the beginning of God, but yes, it is the beginning of our world. Now, technically, we weren't created on the first day, so I don't want to say in the beginning, and like, man was right there at the exact first moment of time. But yes, this is the beginning of our world. This is the beginning of our history. Um, and we are very close to the beginning of the world. We receive our beginning in our first parents. Let me keep moving, though. Why would six days be important later for the Israelites? Because they had to wait on the, on all of those days, not on the seventh. It was a signature point day. This is your time to work, not the other day. Exactly. This is kind of basic, but it's important. This pattern of how God created the earth, 
worked six days, rested on the seventh, that would become the direct pattern that was commanded for Israel. They were to keep the Sabbath because God had sanctified the Sabbath when he rested on it. That's actually when I quoted you that passage from Exodus 20. That's the context. It's the Sabbath command of the Ten Commandments. He says, why do you do this? Because this is the way God created. That is significant. Because some people say, well, why would God create in six days? Couldn't he do it all in a moment? Of course he could have, but he chose not to. Why? Because he wanted to set a pattern. Actually, kind of an interesting fact of church history. Augustine did not believe in literal six-day creation. Kind of funny, the, the reason why. It had to do with some uh, adoption of Greek philosophy. But he reasoned that God would have created everything all at once because he's a powerful God. I, I see where he's coming from, but that's not what the text says. And that's not paying close attention to the pattern that God was setting. It's not as if God needed to rest on that seventh day, but he wanted to set a pattern. Yeah, yes, God maybe, yeah. Are we really going to accuse God of second thoughts when he, he himself says this is a very good creation? Uh, hang on to that comment. I want to make sure we have enough time for everything. And I think we already went to this last one. Why would it be important for the Israelites to realize God's ownership and omnipotence? It's so that they would seek him and they would trust him. Now, we've done our overview of the passage. Some have tried to take the creation sequence given in Genesis 1, and they've tried to fit that with what is popular today, the Big Bang evolutionary model for the origins of the earth and universe and life. And they suggest that we can integrate these two things. We can take the six days that are given in the accounts of Genesis 1 and interpret them not as literal days, but long ages, millions of years. They were part of the process of creating the earth. I mean, Genesis 1 is not wrong, but these are figurative days. Well, can the Bible and modern secular theory really adhere to one another in this way? Let's do an activity to find out. Calling this, the order matters. I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. What we're going to do is we're going to take certain stipulations of the typical secular scientific view of the universe's beginning, and we're going to compare it to the biblical view, to what's actually said in Genesis 1. So I've got nine main assertions. We could do more, but nine main assertions from the secular view of origins, and let's compare it with the Bible. Number one, in the secular view of origins, the sun was formed before the earth. But in the biblical view, which came first? The earth came before the sun, which we see in verse 1 and verses 14 to 16. In the secular view, number two, the earth started as a molten ball. But in the biblical view, what is the beginning state of the earth? It's covered with water. It's formless and covered in water, which is what verse 2 tells us. Number three, in the secular view, the stars were formed before the earth. In the biblical view, the opposite. The earth was formed before the stars. Earth is formed on day one. Stars are formed on day four. In the secular view, the dry land was present before the oceans. But in the biblical view, you add water before you add land. Or the water was covering anything, the, the land hadn't appeared. <clears throat> in the secular view, you have sea creatures evolving before land plants. In the biblical view, you have plants created before any creatures were created. 
Verse 6, in a secular view, trees evolved long after simple plants appeared. But according to the Bible, they were created at the same time. There's no gap between these two things, the plants and the trees. Created at the same day, same time. In the secular view, land reptiles evolved before birds. In the biblical view, birds created first. Birds created on day five. Reptiles, which would be in the category of creeping things, created on day six. In the secular view, reptiles evolved before mammals. In the biblical view, created at the same time, day six. In the secular view, humans evolved long after mammals. In the biblical view, created same day. Now, probably humans were the last creatures created, but we're not talking about thousands of years apart. We're talking like minutes apart, both on day six. Now, we could do more comparisons, but I think you are seeing a pattern. Let's draw some conclusions that hang on to that question. Does Genesis 1 seem to indicate that the events described happen in a particular order? Yes, clearly. How consistent are the order of events between the two views, the biblical and the secular? They're not consistent at all. In fact, they're opposite in many ways. If you really were determined, what might you do to make the secular view align with the biblical view? you have to reinterpret the Genesis 1 account. You have to take what it indicates it means, and you have to ignore that, and you have to interpret it in another way. And this is what many people do. You make the days mean vast periods of time. You make the days overlap with one another. You make the days topical rather than chronological. That will enable you to fit a secular view of origins into the Bible. But you're not actually letting the Bible speak. Because really, are the secular and biblical views compatible with one another? They aren't. They aren't. You have to reinterpret the text in order to fit old earth assumptions in there. This only destroys God's original meaning. The text indicates historical chronology and sequence. You have to compromise that to fit the secular view. You have to contradict the text. You cannot let it, what it, you cannot let it mean what it clearly in, indicates to you that it means. And the Israelites, they saw nothing in the text to interpret it according to an old earth, big bang, evolutionary worldview. You're never going to get that from the text. And neither virtually did any Christian interpreter until about the year 1800. Nobody looked, I shouldn't say nobody, we have Augustine, but virtually nobody who was a Christian looked at the Genesis 1 account and said, oh, this isn't history, this is just figurative. Who knows how God made the world? He might have used some crazy process we've never heard of. Virtually no Christian, no Israelite did that before the year 1800. What happened in 1800? Well, enlightenment ideas made Christians begin to compromise. So why should we today say that the text indicates something different than God's people have interpreted to indicate for more than 3,000 years? Nobody got it right until modern man. We should have pause if that's what we're going to assert. We can trust the Bible's account of creation over the scientific and philosophical assertions of men today. 
Only God's word is completely trustworthy and authoritative. You say, but what about the specific objections? Well, we'll get to those. In the coming lessons, we'll talk more about why today's prevailing scientific theories and the Genesis account can't coexist. But for now, I hope you see that these two view of origins, they are fundamentally opposed to one another, even in simply the order of how things took place. So we've overviewed the Genesis account today, the creation account, and we've compared it to the evolutionary view of origins with our last minutes here. Let me take us through some application questions. And I'll have to do this quickly too. Many people claim that the Bible doesn't tell us how God created. It just tells us that he did create. Is that an accurate statement based on the text of Genesis 1? It's not. It's not. The passage says many times how God created. He spoke, he commanded, and it came to be. Psalm 33.6 confirms this. Hebrews 11.3 also does. It says the worlds were prepared by the word of God. The Bible is not fuzzy about this. Number two, as we approach this topic in conversations with fellow believers, what should be our attitude? It's good for us to have a zeal for the Lord, but we've got to remember 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, being always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This is not a salvific issue. This is not something that you should just call somebody a heretic over. You should warn them to go into hell. No. Good for you to be zealous for the truth. People who are caught up in the error of trying to integrate secular theory with the Genesis account or just take it figurative, that's going to be hurtful to them. That's going to be hurtful to the church. But this is a topic that we need to approach gently and in love. Many different positions in today's church on creation. We'll talk about some of them as we go forward. It's worth talking about, but with gentleness and reverence. And as we seek to persuade our brethren, when it comes to the right view of creation, what should we use as our chief support? The Word of God. Always go to the Scriptures. Scientific evidence has a place, but even that has to be interpreted according to a worldview. And we need the biblical worldview. After all, creation was a supernatural event. It doesn't fit strictly with the natural laws we observe today. You need a supernatural witness to understand it. And what do you know? We have it in the Scriptures. God was gracious to provide it. So when we're talking about this with our brethren, let's not argue simply based on scientific data. Let's direct our brethren to the ultimate authority, which is the Word of God. Speaking of this persuasion, what about when talking with unbelievers? Should our approach to supporting the biblical view of creation look different when we're talking with those who are not Christians? Not really. We should still be going to the Bible as our ultimate support in either situation. I mean, actually, that's part of showing people where the real authority is. If you go to some authority outside the Bible to prove the Bible, well, the Bible's not really the ultimate authority. It's whatever you pointed to. Though, there will be one difference in how we talk to unbelievers about creation. That we want to make sure that creation, and convincing them about creation is not ultimately what we're after. We want to give them the gospel. We want to bring them the word that saves. We can persuade them about creation, but if we leave them in the dark when it comes to their soul, we've done them a disservice. Number four, if we suggest that the account of creation in Genesis is a myth or an allegory, what important biblical doctrines would be affected? We could point to a number of them. Inerrancy is infected because what the Bible says is not true. 
Marriage, how you understand marriage is affected. Gender, sexuality, man, your anthropology, original sin, if Adam, if the first man and woman weren't really created the way they were, then how does original sin work? Total depravity, Christ, who's said to descend from the first man and woman, the gospel. Because even the gospel connects with creation because we're talking about the first Adam and the last Adam. These all are connected. So there's good reason for us to want to get this right and to help our brethren get this right. This isn't just like, oh, you know, if you get, we want to talk about creation, I guess we can. No, this is, this is important. And then finally, we touched on this earlier. How should understanding that God created the universe in six days by simply speaking it into existence affect us? Well, the same way it was meant to affect the Israelites. God's omnipotence should give us faith in his promises. If he speaks the world into existence, he can be faithful to whatever he's promised you. He is able to give new life to all those who call upon him because he gave life in creation. God's majesty should give us awe and thankfulness in being able to know him. God's ownership should convict us of our rebellion and cause us to seek reconciliation with him through the one who is, a, who is God's only intermediary, Jesus Christ. So there's much for us even to apply just from this first chapter of Genesis. Now, I know there were some other questions or comments from hands raised, but I wanted to make sure that we, didn't, that we could get through all the things I want to talk about today. But if you still have those comments and questions, come see me after class or email me or something like that. This is just the beginning of our series. Next week, we're going to be looking more closely at the first four days of creation, and we're going to especially investigate the meaning of the word day, a Hebrew word yom. How are we supposed to understand that word when creationists come and say, oh, it's just, you know, 24 hours? Are they really justified in saying so? We'll look at that together. If you'd like more information on this topic, of course, you and I can talk about it, but I also recommend AnswersInGenesis.org. And they have a lot of good information there. And I also recommend the book, Coming to Grips with Genesis, Biblical Authority in the Age of the Earth. It's a collection of essays from seminary professors and others on different issues related to creation. Maybe you have questions and like, I really want somebody who's thought about this a lot to answer it. Well, you'll find a lot of great answers in that book. So check those out. Yeah. Very good. So beyond just... Yeah, not beyond the website, we also, in our book nook, and probably in our lending library, we have a number of resources and answers in Genesis. Good for you, good for some other people that you know, good for your children as well. All right, let me close there. Hope to see you back next week. Well, God, you are the mighty creator. You are so glorious, Lord. Just even hearing this account and seeing it visually depicted, Lord, I'm brought back to awe, like, wow, I can't believe, God, you just thought this all up, and then you spoke it. Lord, you are God. You are worthy of glory. You are worthy of our de devotion and worship. Lord, help us, help us to not become timid about what your word says about you, because your word is reliable, when the world contradicts that and says, no, 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 that can't be how it happened. Lord, help us to truly have a biblical worldview, to start with and stick with your word, knowing that the word of the Lord proves true, and that you are a shield to all those who trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.